Well, again, good morning. Welcome. Um, is it a little echoey right now, or is it okay? Fine? Okay. I'm hearing something, and I'm not sure what it is. Good morning again. Welcome to Crossroads. Uh, since Pastor Aaron is gone, uh, you probably know by now, if I'm up here, we're going to be looking at the words in red that we've been going through. That is, we're looking at the words of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, all of those verses that are printed in red by many publishers, uh, the words of Jesus, hence the Words in Red series. And we have been doing that for actually quite some time now. But this morning, we're going to finally turn a little bit of a corner. We have been looking at Matthew's, uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 for quite some time, actually. That section of Scripture is called the Sermon on the Mount, probably the greatest collection of teaching on morals, ethics, religious practice, uh, the law, you name it. It's all-encompassing. It's a a wonderful um, bunch of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, and we finished that uh, the last time we were together in the Words in Red series. So we're going to be moving on now into chapter 8 of the book of Matthew. Um, And we're going to be looking at Specifically, over the next two or three times, the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. And we're going to look at it from a couple, three different perspectives. We're going to be talking about the religious authority of Jesus, the civil authority of Jesus, and the spiritual authority of Jesus. Jesus' authority encompasses A lot of things, does it not? And we're going to be looking at those, and those are my words, the religious authority, the civil authority, the spiritual authority. That's how I'm looking at this passage of Scripture. Um, And we will uh, kind of break it down into those categories. Today, we will be talking about Jesus and his religious authority. authority. Authority over things religious. Authority over religion. In particular, of course... Uh, the religion of the Jews of the day, and necessarily, of course, as we move forward through history, the authority over Christian practices and religion. Um, Even when I say that word, religion, religion, does anybody have a negative uh, thought about that word? Does anybody get the old heebie-jeebies when you hear the word religion? Um, Oh, you're a religious person. How nice (laughs) for you. Don't talk to me about your religion, right? Even in the church, even in the church, the word religion almost has a pejorative sense sometimes. People, well, we're not about religion. We're not about religion. We're about what? Relationship. We're about relationship. We're not about religion. Well, it's a peculiar place to be in since Jesus says a lot about religious things, (laughs) religious activities, faith and practices. If you look up a dictionary definition of the word religion, uh, you will come upon this. A set of practices and beliefs subscribed to by its adherents, adherents and followed by faith. I'll read that again. A set of practices and beliefs subscribed to by its adherents and followed in faith. It also has the idea behind it that there is Typically in a religious environment, a supernatural being who is sort of the overall uh, 
character in charge of those things, the super being, the God, uh, over it all. And so I hate to tell you, but by definition, Christianity is a religion. It is a religion. Uh, We certainly emphasize the relational aspect of our religion, and that's with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We certainly emphasize that relational aspect of Christianity. But it is, in fact, Christianity is a religion. We have a set of prescribed beliefs. We have... um, Um, doctrines. We have practices, biblical practices, and we as adherents and followers of the religion and followers of Jesus Christ, we actually follow those things in faith. So we are a religion. So be be proud. Own it. You're a religious person. Um, I think when we hear the word religion, and especially as we know the history of church. There are negative connotations associated with the church. Throughout history, the church has not always been the greatest light uh, to lead people to God's glory, for sure. And I think we frequently associate religion with dead practices, dead faith, authoritarianism, maybe legalism, things um, that are not necessarily a part of the Christian religion as it should be practiced. But people have that negative connotation. I think it has more to do with the malpractice of religion as opposed to the practice of religion uh, in our society that that stems from. So that being said, we are going to look at Jesus' authority over religious things for us. And we're going to do that today by starting with Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, going through Matthew 8, 4, just six, six verses or so. And I would ask you to stand, as is uh, our custom, as we honor God when we read his words. Stand if you're able, of course. Matthew 7, verse 28, through Matthew 8, verse 4. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. You may be seated. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and of course all the other authors of your books, Lord. We thank you for their uh, insight and wisdom and understanding as they were given, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit to write these things for us. Lord, give us ears to hear that we may indeed understand today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So there's a story that I came across uh, looking on this subject of authority that uh, speaks about a, a time when a governor, a former governor of Massachusetts, his name was Christian Herter, H-E-R-T-E-R. I mean, he was running for re-election as governor in Massachusetts in 1955. Um, it had been a long day of campaigning this particular day. He'd put a lot of effort into it. They had gone without lunch, and they were arriving at a church for a barbecue on the campaign trail. I don't know how much they were mixing politics and religion, but they were at a church eating a barbecue uh, after a long day of campaigning. And Governor Herter got in line uh, for the chicken, and he came to the chicken lady, and she promptly put a piece of chicken on his plate. One piece of chicken on his plate. And Governor Herter said to himself, I'm pretty hungry. (laughs) This ain't going to cut it. If I'm going to continue and finish the day, I need more chicken. I'm paraphrasing, by the way. So he decided he was going to step up and ask the chicken lady for another piece of chicken, and he did so. And the chicken lady uh, told him that she had been instructed very carefully to give only one piece of chicken to each person. Governor Herder pondered, pondered, thought about it. He knew he was hungry, famished, and decided to go the next level. And he said, you know, I I don't think you know who I am. He was a humble, unassuming man. Um, But he, I don't don't think you know who I am. I'm I'm the governor of the state of Massachusetts, and I'd like another piece of chicken. And the chicken lady said, well, I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Move along. <laughs> oh, authority. <laughs> authority. Uh, I think the governor was probably stung just a little bit. His authority as the governor of the state of Massachusetts ran headlong into the rock of Gibraltar, the chicken lady. And she informed him in no uncertain terms he was getting no more chicken. Well, we're going to turn to our text and look at the authority of Jesus. Uh, How did Jesus wield his authority? What was his source for his authority? Uh, did Did people agree that he had authority? Did they think he had authority? And it becomes clear immediately from our passage that people thought Jesus had authority. He was unique different. Something about him spoke to them because they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. And he spoke as one who had authority, not as the scribes. These people were not unfamiliar with the word of God. In their synagogues, in their homes, in the temple, through feasts and uh, just worship, daily worship and everything else, they knew the word of God. And we read through all those verses in chapters 5, 6, and 7 uh, when Jesus was teaching from the, on the Sermon on the Mount, and there was something absolutely recognizable, something different. Whether it was his tone, whether it was his presence, might have been all those things, they recognized that Jesus had authority. He spoke to them 
as one who did. Um, that phrase uh, uh, about them being astonished at his teaching occurs frequently throughout the Gospels. Um, I'm working through the book of Mark, and it's quite uh, surprising how many times Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Mark, makes those kinds of statements. The people were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Um, on matters of religion and faith, Jesus said this frequently during the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. That's unique. That's phrasing that's a little bit different. As you read through, if you read through at all, and I've touched a tiny little bit of Jewish historical writings, that's the kind of phrase you just don't hear. But I say to you, Jesus standing in a place of authority, assuming a place of authority. And he laid down the law, so to speak, as he interpreted all of that uh, writing, all of those beliefs and traditions that the Jews had come to know, he interpreted Scripture, the law, in a way that was unique and different. In my humble opinion, he brought it back to where it belonged. He brought it to where it belonged. It wasn't that he was doing something new. He was almost doing something old. But he did it in a new and fresh way. So people thought Jesus had authority, but not all the people. There were exceptions, primarily the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, those people with religious and political authority were threatened by Jesus. Clearly, it's apparent. We know that as soon as we start reading through the Gospels. We see how many times there's a conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus. It's kind of like the governor of Massachusetts coming up against the chicken lady. She had authority in this matter. Jesus has authority, but it threatens the authority and the power of all of those religious leaders. So not all the people were astonished or thrilled by the things uh, that Jesus did. Certainly, the leprous man thought Jesus had authority. After the teaching, Jesus comes down from the mountain. A leprous man approaches him, our text says, and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And it's an interesting word to note. He doesn't say if you can. He's not doubting that Jesus can. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. We pray that even in our own prayers. Lord, if you will, if it be your will. This is how the leprous man approached Jesus. If you will, I know it can be so. And Jesus says, I will be clean. Not only does he have the authority, he demonstrates with power that he has the authority. He demonstrates with power. Power and authority, although we think of them synonymously a lot of the time, they're not exactly the same thing. Power can be usurped. It can be used incorrectly. 
uh, a bank robber has no authority to the money uh, or control of the money in the bank, and yet a bank robber, through the use of power, may take that money and use it for his own purposes. An authority, you may have authority, but you either may not have the power to enforce it, nor the, the desire to enforce it through power. And we'll see some of both of those things as we move through the scripture. That power and authority, while we think of them synonymously, they're not always the same thing. In this particular case, Jesus has authority, and he demonstrates it through the use of his power. What's interesting is what follows. Jesus tells the man to go and show himself to the priest and to make an offering as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Uh, as it moves through, as Jesus moves through his ministry, we see frequently that the Pharisees think Jesus is doing things incorrectly, that he's not obeying the law, that he doesn't follow the law, that he's given up on all the religious practices of the Jews. And he demonstrates here this just simply isn't true. He tells and instructs the man to go to the priest as instructed in the Old Testament law, show yourself to him, and then make the proper gift offering that is done when one is made clean from this kind of a condition. And it was a horrible condition to be in. Uh, a leper. Uh, the fact that even Jesus reached out and touched him uh, is an amazing thing, uh, but he did. He has all religious authority to do these things. So he sends the, the man off. Um, well, what's <laughs> it's instructive for us here is that Jesus holds to the historical reading of the law, the accurate historical reading of the law. Pastor Aaron frequently talks about um, historical Christianity and how we hold to the practices of historical Christianity. And what he means by that is that we hold to the practices of the word as we understand it, as best we can understand it today. We hold to what the Word um, teaches us. It is authoritative. It is the Word of God. Jesus spoke the Word. Um, it gives us a guide and a place to go. And so when we talk about historical Christianity, we're not simply talking about traditions, things that we hold on to uh, for no reason other than it's a tradition. We stop singing one kind of a song and we sing another kind of a song, that was a tradition. There's nothing in the Bible about singing a particular kind of song. We sing worship music uh, of one kind or another. So we've we dropped some traditions, but we hold on to the authoritative word of God. Jesus did that as a Jew practicing in the first century, and we do that today as Christians practicing in the 21st century. We hold to authority. Uh, perhaps even more interesting about this story is if you read it in the book of Mark, it has an addendum on the end of this story. It's a little bit different in Mark chapter 1, somewhere, uh, verse 43, verse 43 maybe. After healing him, the leprous man 
Mark informs us, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said, say nothing, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what was commanded by Moses for a proof to them. Same thing as what uh, Matthew records for us. And then it says, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Jesus sternly charged him (laughs) and said, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer, as Moses commanded, for your cleansing as a proof to them. And what did the leprous man do? went out and began to talk about it freely (laughs) so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town because of the numbers of people that were coming after him. That's an interesting aspect about Jesus' authority then, now, but perhaps not always. We can disobey. Jesus has authority, absolute absolute authority to tell us what to do, when to do it, how to do it, I suppose, if we were to look at it in that extreme. He has authority, but we can choose to not do what he says. Now, I don't know how serious this was, this situation with this leprous man. Jesus told him what to do, and he didn't do it. And there seems to be consequences He can't go into towns anymore, but he's out in desolate places. So it seems to impact the ministry to some degree, although in all these instances where this exact kind of thing happens, it happens more than once, uh, whenever Jesus goes out into the wilderness, there's still crowds of people clamoring after him. But it's an interesting thing to note that this leprous man did not do as Jesus says. I wonder what would have happened if the governor had grabbed another piece of chicken (laughs) off the chicken lady's plate. Be interested to know. He was excited. He'd been healed. Can you imagine being cut off, being cut off from everything you love and know, being told to remain outside the city, never have contact with people, and somebody touches him and heals him? You know he's excited. So I'm still working through exactly what all that means when people absolutely ignore what Jesus tells them to do. But that is the case here. Jesus says do A, and what do we do? We do B or C. We might do Z way down there. It's our natural inclination. We have a fallen nature. We don't always um, humble ourselves before, before authority. We call him Lord, and then we do as we please. But this is a temporary condition. We know that from Scripture. Well, what does Jesus say about his authority? What does he say? We're going to turn to John chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 19 and 20, and then onward to verse 30. Jesus has this to say about his authority. In John chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. Truly, 
Truly, I say to you, the Son, of, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And then in verse 30, Jesus continues with, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I can do nothing of my own, Jesus says. I do what the Father says. I do the will of the Father. Now, trying to understand the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the Incarnation, uh, those two subjects you could probably feel, I, I don't know how many volumes have been filled talking about those subjects, the Trinity and the Incarnation. There's a, a deep mystery there. Uh, uh, God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then one of those three, the Son, being incarnated in the flesh on earth and living as a humble servant. How did he, did he, how did he divest himself of his authority, authority that he still wields because the Father is giving him that authority and he's doing what the Father says. How does all that work? I don't think I know. <laughs> I'm not sure I do. We read the results of those things. We read the results of a triune God. We see the impact of an incarnate Christ on this earth, but understanding it and making really bold proclamations about what it means for Jesus to be man and God, I've, I'm just not there. I haven't figured it out yet. Um, but it is a deep, deep mystery. Um, there's something we learn there again from Jesus as a humble servant divesting himself of his Godhood in some respect and yet doing as the Father says. Doing as the Father says and wielding authority in that way. I'm sure there's a lesson there for us as we think about our lives and how we live and where we where and how we humble ourselves and to what extent. There was a confrontation, uh, another one of many, with Jesus and the scribes in another situation where Jesus had entered a synagogue and, uh, I'm sorry, a home. He had come back to Capernaum and he was in somebody's home and there were crowds of people all around the house. So much so that you could not any longer get to the front door if you came to the house. And there's a paralytic, a man who is paralyzed, paralytic, uh, who is being carried by his four friends to come see Jesus. They believe Jesus has authority. They believe he demonstrates that in power. And they come to the house, they can't get in, so they remove the roof above Jesus in the house, and the four friends lower the paralytic down. Uh, to Jesus. And it says that when Jesus saw their faith, he said, what, you're healed? No, he did not. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now that, my friends, was a big crime. Healing is one thing, healing on the Sabbath another, but saying your sins are forgiven was an incredible blasphemy to the Jewish leaders. And they say so uh, in this passage. This is in Mark chapter 2, verses 8 and following. Um, They said, um, after Jesus healed them and he said those words, son, your sins are forgiven, it says that the scribes were kind of questioning these things in their hearts and wondering, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus has said it was, he perceived what they were thinking in their hearts. And he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never saw anything like this. We never saw anything like this. Jesus had authority from the Father And he demonstrates it in power to these religious leaders. Um, That, in particular, is authority over religious practices and matters because he makes it clear that, no, scribes, you are wrong, that I can forgive sins as the Son of God. The Son of Man, Son of God, uh, both phrases are pretty much interchangeable, has that authority to forgive sins. So Jesus has authority in these matters of religion and faith. And all glory goes to the Father. Jesus tells us that. Jesus is a humble servant. But there's one more thing about Jesus' authority, that he speaks to his followers, but it happens after the cross. The dynamic changes. The dynamic changes after the cross. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, a passage that I'm sure most of you are very familiar with, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, says this. After the resurrection, he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, and Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the earth. Jesus declares it to his followers. We live, we live under this kind of, of rule and authority now. All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and earth, and he says to us, go, therefore, and make disciples. It's interesting. Question probably to ask, do we obey him? Do you obey him? 
Not always, in every moment are we going out in some way, but as a matter of your life, the way you live, the way your life is characterized, are you obeying Jesus in these matters? Do you go and make disciples wherever you are in your daily life? Is there any way to, um, that you interact with people in a way that uh, tells them you're a child of the living God? I wasn't planning on this, but this story just popped into my head because it was something I mentioned to somebody earlier. Uh, you know that I work as an elevator mechanic. Elevator mechanics, as a rule, are not religious people. Well, they're religious, but they're religious about different things than you might think about here in church. They have a very religious way of speaking. There's only three words that are used as modifiers or that kind of thing, and they're used religiously every time they open their mouth. Uh, Elevator men tend to drink. (laughs) They tend to drink a lot, some of them. Not everyone, but elevator men are not the kind of people that you would normally find in church on Sunday morning. And two weeks ago, I meet with these, there's seven or eight mechanics that I meet with every Friday morning. We have coffee. And we were talking about the church. Got onto the topic. I had told one of the guys that I lead worship in our church. And he had to say something to everybody else, of course. So then they were all talking about church. And I was shocked they knew a whole lot more about church than I would have ever given them credit for. In fact, one of them said he used to come to this church, Crossroads, uh, many years ago. His name was Randy. Uh, I can never remember these Otis guys' last name. I'm too new with them. But Randy uh, used to come here to this church several years ago. And we were going along and we're talking, and they just, they keep just going at it, going at it. And then they bring politics into it and the mix and all this. And then somehow they got on the Eucharist or the, you know, the communion. And they were talking about the, the bread and the wine and Oh, so you can drink wine and blah, blah, blah. And then one of them says, yeah, but it's, it's not really the body and the blood. It's just, you know, wine and, and bread. And somebody else said, well, I don't know. I think there's something. And I said, yeah, that's transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. That is the belief that the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ in the Catholic Church. Transubstantiation. And you should have seen their faces. <laughs> Transubstantiation. They counted up the number of syllables in that word, and then they went on. But they, the, the topic of conversation was the church, and it was a full-on 20-minute conversation, and I was shocked. And I was so glad afterwards, having had the opportunity to actually talk about the church. I mean, they're not, they're not really listening to me, witnessing to them. You know, they're kind of doing their deal. But by just mentioning in the right context, something about your faith can lead to lots of stuff. That's what Jesus called called us to. And he has the authority to command us to do it. He has the authority. We can still disobey him at this time. I think that's all going to change uh, at some point in history. We know that At a point in time appointed by God the Father, all people will bow. Every tongue confessed, every knee will bow and confess Jesus as Lord. Whether they mean it as a follower or just someone who must bow at this point and confess what they don't believe, uh, it's going to happen. Jesus is going to 
is, his name will be lifted up. Well, there is good news <laughs> about this every knee bowing and every tongue confess. We still have a choice right now. There will come a time when there is no choice. Uh, I survey this crowd, and I suspect that most of you are believers. But if you're not, um, there is a choice that remains for us now. God gives us that choice, and we can actually uh, kneel before Christ and give him authority over our lives. We can make him Lord of our lives. Uh, Some, of course, it goes against our nature. I am is the cry we all want to cry out. I am. I'm the one who decides. I'm the one who has authority. I do what I want to do when I want to do it. That's our cry. Uh, It's our nature. It's hard to, to, to admit it, but it is. But there can still be a choice now to kneel before God, and he gives us abundant life. That's the trick, and it's a good trick. We all think we're giving ourselves, giving our lives away, and it's going to be miserable from that time forward, and we never get to party again and never get to do anything that's any fun. But that's the trick of it all. It doesn't. It frees you. The minute you take that step in faith, you are freed from all the bondage that you've been in. That is for us today. That choice remains. If you have any questions about that, you can feel free to stop me after the service or uh, probably any one of these fine folk you run across would be able to talk to you about that. Uh, Good news indeed. Well, we're going to come to our communion table um, at this point. And it's a table that represents, of course, the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Uh, We do it together as a family to remember who Jesus is, to remember the sacrifice that he made, to understand all the mysteries of that thing about God and how he comes and dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. That's what this table is about, the sacrifice that was made that Jesus did on the cross for us. We have open communion here. If you're a believer, you're welcome to come to this table. You do not have to be a member of this church. Um, We do it in this manner that we have the bread and the the cup uh, on one side and the other both, and you just file up the aisles and you dip the bread into the wine, the juice, uh, as you take communion. Uh, Let's pray. Those people that are coming to serve, if they want to go ahead and head up this way, I'm sorry, should invite them up. And I should actually talk about the bread and the wine. (laughs) In the day that Jesus uh, was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. And as you eat it, remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. As often as you drink it, remember me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your Son, we thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for what this table represents. Father, would that we kneel before you, that we would um, give up that heavy burden uh, that does 
uh, tie us down, Lord, and give it all to you through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would uh, forgive us for those things that we do and that do not bring glory to your name. Lord, forgive us for those things today. Lord, we thank you for this blessing and this family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm glad you tuned into this podcast message. We'd love it if you came down and visited us in person on Sunday mornings at 1030. You can follow Crossroads on Twitter at Crossroads, C-N-C-R-D, as in Concord, and keep up to date with news and events on our Facebook group page. God bless you.